I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So wait, I gotta say one of the things, one of the things that really pisses me off about the Clinton administration during this whole coronavirus hoax is the fact that they are such snowflakes. I mean, lock the country down in January and order 50 bajillion testing kits the minute the first report of the virus gets back to us from China, appoint Richard Preston to head the COVID-19 task force. Oh yeah, wait, 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 wait. I know, I know what you're doing here. What am I doing? And they're so smug and school marmish about the whole thing. I mean, so fine. We only had 200 cases in the U.S., but geez, how many TikToks am I going to have to watch of Hillary washing hands in a pantsuit? At least she's had more practice than most of us being married to Bill. Am I right? All right. All right. Look, unfortunately, this, I hate to break it to you, this did not occur. Sad the whole piece. Clinton presidency thing. <laughs> We did not get a head start on the virus. We did not order a bajillion testing kits. Donald Trump is president. He ordered no testing kits to speak of, and he is currently estimating that between 100,000 and 200,000 people are going to die from COVID-19, which suddenly makes this seem a lot less funny now that I'm talking about it, while claiming that he is not responsible for anything and is, in fact, doing a great job. Mother... And that, dear friends, is why we're talking about alternative histories on today's episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. And to do that, we are joined by Sue Monk Kidd. Sue's debut, The Secret Life of Bees, spent more than 100 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, became an award-winning major motion picture, and has been translated into 36 languages. Some of those I don't even know. 
Her second novel, The Mermaid Chair, was a number one New York Times bestseller and was adapted into a television movie. Her third novel, The Invention of Wings, was an Oprah's Book Club 2.0 pick and was also a new, number one New York Times bestseller. She is the author of the acclaimed memoirs, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, a groundbreaking work on religion and feminism, and the New York Times bestseller, Traveling with Pomegranates, written with her daughter, Anne Kidd Taylor. Her new novel, The Book of Longings, is coming out April 21st. Welcome, Sue. Thanks for having me. The Book of Longings is about a young woman named Anna who becomes the wife of Jesus. Uh, you've described it as an alternate history story. For any listeners out there who might be unfamiliar with that term, I'm wondering if you could talk about what an alternate history story means to you and how it applies to your new book. I'm not sure I had that concept when I first started, but I soon realized that that's what I was doing. I was writing an alternate history. Um, let me just say this about history itself. Uh, when I was writing The Invention of Wings, that's a historical novel, uh, I had to think a lot about history and what it means. And I, I realized that history is not um, a fixed thing. You know, we have this idea that it's static, that it's some place in the past, and that's the way it was. Uh, but the more I looked into this, I began to understand that um, history is a construction of a narrative. And that narrative is written, or actually it's gathered together by a lot of evidence. Now, what evidence do you choose to look at and which evidence do you leave out? Which voices are in that evidence and which voices aren't in that evidence? And then you have um, to interpret all of this evidence. And you do that based on what? Your predilections, your biases, your family system, the culture you're in, whether you're privileged or not privileged, um, on just so many different things. What's your worldview? Now, the next thing I learned was that history is more or less constructed by men for men. We have discussed that a few times on the podcast. <laughs> have you? Okay. Okay, we're on to something then. Um, so part of what an alternate history is about is to shake that up. And so, you know, history needs to be radically reimagined from time to time because it's never really complete. Yes, I, I realized I was writing an alternate history and why did I want to do that? Because when Jesus became a bachelor, it really screwed up a lot of things. And I think um, I wanted to rewrite that because this is at the heart of so many problems for women. So let's imagine that Jesus wasn't a bachelor. What would that look like? And one of the questions that really gripped me and I actually wrote it on a card, propped it on my desk, was uh, how would the world be different if Jesus had had a wife who had really been a partner and had a story and been part of the whole narrative? How would we be different? And I was convinced it would be uh, quite, quite different. Um, for one thing, um, the highest value wouldn't be... Um, celibacy and virginity. I mean, that probably would be really different. And we have this breach between sexuality and spirituality that has affected, impacted so many things. Um, you know, Jesus was too holy to be sexual. 
so he's not really like us. There are all kinds of uh, ramifications from this, but the one that really was most significant to me, because I have been, for a very long time, at least 20 years, studying and trying to understand and look into um, the misogyny within religion and how that plays out in women's lives and in who we are and in how the culture uh, approaches women. So um, I had to look at it from that standpoint particularly, and I know that women would not have had as many limitations placed on them if Jesus had had a wife. So that's, that's the reason for the alternate history. So, Sue, alternate histories seem to have become particularly popular in recent years. Philip K. Dick's 1962 novel, The Man in the High Castle, was recently made into a popular television series, as was Roth's The Plot Against America. And of course, Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad was wildly popular a couple years back and is being turned into a TV series by Barry Jenkins. Why do you think these alternate history stories are so popular right now? I think probably because it gives us this shocking, in a way, maybe, maybe the word is astonishing, startled way of thinking about our history. It makes us think, whoa, what if it was different? What if it had been different? What, what would that mean? Or maybe it scares us, as in, how fragile is this government? <laughs> how fragile uh, is our life? And um, this, could it turn into something autocratic, just like that? So I think it jolts us. Um, Was it Kafka that said a book should be like a, it should crack open the ice in us. And I think that's what an alternate history somehow does. It causes us to just think dramatically different. And that's really good for us because what an alternate history does is kind of loosen up the possibilities. And I think fiction um, is not just to look at our culture and say, see, this is what we have and, and this is what it means, but to say, what is possible? And I, um, I think that is what E.M. Foster was talking about when he said that fiction delivers Fiction is meant to deliver a series of small astonishments, or maybe one big one, you know. Sue, your alternate history is what I'd call positive. You know, it attempts to unearth a truth that has been hidden by our official, quote unquote, history, which you've been, which you're alluding to in your earlier answer. But there are also what I would call negative alternative histories out there. You know, the Trump administration and Fox News, in my personal opinion, are trying to create their own alternate history, working daily to rewrite Trump's failings with, uh, on COVID-19 in a more positive light, which is why we're all here in separate places uh, doing this podcast rather than being together. So I wonder if some of the impetus to create positive alternative histories comes out of our awareness that negative ones are being created as well. Hmm. I can't really say I was that perceptive, actually. Um, but I think it gives impetus to the reason to do it, you know. When I think of what is going on every afternoon with these press conferences, um, I suppose in a way they're trying to create an alternate history, but it seems more in the moment, in real time, that we're just creating a whole alternate reality and a, 
I mean, it's, it's as if there's a transaction going on of how to take truth and turn it in, I mean, take a lie and turn it into truth. And that's an interesting idea. That may be different than an alternate, creating an alternate history. I don't know. This just seems um, bizarre what's going on there. But I suppose if it works, and it seems to work in some quarters. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Then you end up with an alternate history. I worry whether it can get traction in people's minds and actually become um, the version that everybody accepts. So then somebody down the road is going to have to write an alternate history history to this fake history. I mean, it's getting very complicated. Yeah. And and, and it's interesting to mention the, the briefings, of course, which have become a daily event that people, it's sort of like litmus test. You know, I have friends who say, I never watch the briefings anymore. My partner has banned me from watching the briefings, or I don't watch the briefings because I know he's just going to lie. And a number of networks have recently decided because it's full of lies not to carry it. And then yesterday I saw that Trump is um, list building off of the mainstream media's decision to not carry his alternative history. So there's an alternative history to the alternative history, which is that Trump has said, um, essentially, you know, the quote unquote lamestream media with their fake news won't carry my briefings in full. Won't you sign my petition? Um, they're not giving me my full due. So even there, they're sort of, I felt like I was a, watching this, a, a history house of cards being built. And I, also just think that the readership for this is so strange because we're seeing the fruit of decades of defunding of public education that has created an audience, a reading audience and a political audience, unlike any we've ever seen before. In this vein, you described your decision to begin work on the Book of Longings as a second chance to take on an idea that struck you about 15 years ago. And of course, writing about Jesus having a wife is no small task. So I'm curious about what changed between then and now um, to prompt you to take the jump into telling the story. Well, when it first occurred to me to do that 15 years ago, um, it was a um, kind of like a bird lights on your head and then takes off. You know, it was there, and it kind of lit me up. Um, and then it and then it sort of um, disappeared in a way. It's not like I've spent 15 years thinking about that. Um, why did it come and go? Uh, probably several reasons. I mean, one is that I was immersed in other projects. And secondly... It seemed like an absurd idea at the time. You know, it was like, who's going to buy this, you know? And it might have been a failure of courage on my part, too. You know, it was probably all these things. But 15 years later, when this came to me, um, I was in a completely different place and time. Um, not long before that, I had um, written a 20th anniversary introduction to the dance of the dissident daughter, which is my telling of my collision with between feminism and religion. It's very personal. 
but also kind of takes on, well, my religion. And um, so what I realized is I was looking back for 20 years. This is what my editor said. Would you just look back over the last 20 years and sort of write about that? Well, I realized that a lot of things had changed and a lot of things had not changed. And it bothered me <laughs> immensely that we still had evangelical Christians, fundamentalist Christians, uh, putting limitations on women, segregating women. It's a uh, separate but equal policy, which sounds just like segregation in the South that I know well. And so I, I think that was playing in my head too, this just um, that we had so much further to go. I think religion is really going to be the last bastion of patriarchy, the last thing to go. It's that deeply mired. Um, now, I, sh I should probably, just for the sake of balance, say a lot has changed in many quarters, and, there's, and it is very different in many ways. But um, So that was in my head. I had to sort of crank my bravery up a little bit. My husband said to me, oh, you're going to let Jesus get married. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> um, well, a lot could, I'm sure. And um, I suspect it would be controversial. But I uh, felt so strongly about writing this book and why I needed to write this book. And it was my own longing to do that. And so I just did it. And I remember the day I sat down and wrote the first um, sentences of the book. And the opening line is, I thought, she's just got to walk out there and say who she is. And so my character says, I am Anna. I was the wife of Jesus ben Joseph of Nazareth. When I wrote that, I sat back in my chair and I thought, I'm doing this. I'm really doing this. <laughs> and it sort of took my breath in that moment. And I wrote somewhere along the line that a woman should at once in her life take her own breath away. And I thought of that in that moment. And I thought, okay, this is mine. This is it. <laughs> well, we're talking about this, uh, you know, you're talking about the, the research and, and the sort of concerns about, you know, uh, that, you, that you had about, you know, doing this project. You know, I wondered if you could talk about other than just the fact that you're going to decide to do it and write that amazing first sentence, once you were in the project, what were some of the challenges that you faced and what were the things that came surprisingly easily that you thought maybe would be difficult? One thing that I was concerned about doing was making this relationship between Jesus and Anna believable. I think people have a lot of... Um, resistance, maybe, that it's internal. They've internalized the idea that the tradition, not necessarily a fact, but a tradition that Jesus was not married, that he was this celibate bachelor. And so I had to, I think we have to deconstruct some of that. And can you just stop for just a moment and, and explain that part, that there is a part of Jesus's life that we don't really know about. That's the lacuna where you're, where you're inserting the story in a way. Yes, for the largest part, yes. Um, from the time he was 12 to the time he was around 30 and took up his public ministry, we have no record of him. And it just seemed quite um, 
prob probable that he had a wife at some point. I mean, he may have, he may not. I'm, I have no real position on the subject. It was never about believing it. It was about imagining it to try and um, deconstruct the resistance we have to believing that was a problem, you know, it wasn't a problem to write their relationship. It was a problem to think about whether the reader was going to buy it or not. And, um, you know, I think we internalize kind of a, a different, maybe it's um, the old fear of authority in the church that we worry about offending or maybe it's um, our own unease with holiness and sexuality because, you know, it's like oil and water. Or maybe we just have a problem with women. I wanted to show the human side of Jesus. And to make that more important somehow for us to grasp that he was a human being with human needs. He was like us. What else was difficult? Well... It wasn't, what was easy, maybe I'll say what was easy. Writing Anna's story for me was like um, everything I had ever wanted to say about the yearning in women to be a voice in the world, to have those limitations removed from them, to leave the margins, to move to the center. Um, it just poured out of me. Um, another thing, I, I don't know why I'm quoting my husband today, but here I go again. <laughs> um, he said to me, when he, he didn't read, I don't let anyone read my manuscript until I'm, except my daughter. She's my reader, and she reads it chapter by chapter. Not my editor, no one, just my daughter, basically. And um, so when I gave him the manuscript to read, um, he came, he didn't say a word about it until he finished it. And he came in. The first thing he said to me was, oh, I see a lot of you in Anna. That's what he said. And that sort of surprised me. And I thought, oh, dear Lord, I have put far too much of myself into Anna. But it is true. I recognize myself there. Um, that yearning to have a voice in the world, to not be silenced. Um, just so many things. And I too took a feminist quest. I had an affinity for writing it and I was passionate about writing it. So um, one of the things that you're talking about and that recurs powerfully in your work is deep friendship and loyalties between women, uh, women who are friends, women who are related. I'm thinking of Yalta and Anna here. I wonder if you could read a passage about deep friendship and loyalties between women for us. I would be glad to do that. This will be my first public reading of this Yay. book. Oh, we're honored. Yeah. Well, I should set it up a little bit. Please. Anna has been betrothed to an older widower, a rather bitter man, who's repugnant to her. And this is a forced marriage kind of situation. And she has now arrived at the uh, palace of King of uh, Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, who is hosting this betrothal ceremony. And I'm going to just pick up with where she is. She's been ushered to a bedchamber before the ceremony takes place, and she's kind of waiting for it. So, 
You are the lamb to be sacrificed, a voice said in Greek. Turning, I saw a dark-skinned, wraith-like woman standing beside a grand bed that was swathed in jewel-colored silks. Her black hair cascaded down her back like a spill of ink. It had to be Thessaly, Antipas' wife. All of Galilee and Perea knew that her father, Aretas, king of the Nabataeans, had conspired with Herod Antipas' father to arrange their marriage as a way to stop skirmishes along their common border. It was said that upon hearing her fate, Thessaly, only 13 at the time, cut her arms and wrists and cried for three days and three nights. The shock of her presence in the room left me momentarily mute. She was dazzling standing there in her scarlet dress and golden mantle, but pitiable too. Her life turned into a ploy by two men. Are you capable of speaking Greek or are you simply too docile to answer me? Her tone was scoffing as if I were an object of amusement to her. Vesely's rebuke was a slap, and it was like waking. A feeling of loss and wrath rose in me. I wanted to shout at her. I am betrothed to someone I despise and who despises me in return. I have little hope I will see the man I love ever again. I don't know what has become of my brother. Words are life to me, yet my writings are buried in the ground. My heart is sickled like wheat tares, and you speak to me like I'm weak and imbecilic? I did not care if she possessed the stature of a queen. I thundered at her, I am no lamb. A flash in her eyes. No, I see you're not. You heap condescension on me, but we are no different, you and I. A sneer slid into her voice. Inform me, please. How are we no different? You were forced to marry as I am now forced. Were not each of us used by our fathers for their own selfish purposes? We are both wares to be traded. She walked toward me and her scent floated out, nard and cinnamon, her hair swayed, her hips oscillated. I thought of the lurid dance my mother had seen her perform, how I would have loved to see it. I feared she was coming to slap me for my insolence, but I saw her eyes had softened. She said, when I last saw my father 17 years ago, he wept bitterly and begged forgiveness for sending me to this wasteland. He told me it was for a noble reason, but I spit on the floor before him. I cannot forget. He loved his kingdom more than me. He married me to a jackal. I saw the difference then. Her father had traded her for peace. My father had traded me for greed. She smiled. And I saw this time there was no guile in it. We shall be friends, she said, taking my hand. Not because our fathers or our shared misfortune. 
We shall be friends because you are no lamb. And I too am no lamb. Oh gosh, thank you so much. I love that passage. And through her friendship with Faseli, who's Herod's wife, Anna finds the strength to speak up for herself. So is that what Anna means on her incantation bowl, on which is inscribed, quote, she was a voice? I really had in mind something else, and that was um, a kind of passion in, that was innate in Anna, important to her. It was her longing, and it was to write the narratives of silenced women, of, of stories that were lost. Um, you know, in the scriptures, it, it's something like 2% of all of the quotes or sayings are by women, and many of them aren't even named. Um, Anna was as disturbed by that as I am, and she... Um, wanted to write these stories of these lost matriarchal stories. She wanted to bring attention to the voices of women and her own. So that was her, her longing. I once had someone ask me years ago, what is the thing that lies deepest in your heart? What is the longing that is at the bottom of your heart? Wow. And you know what came to me was, I want to be a novelist. And uh, that's where it's, that recognition started for me. Maybe I had something like that in mind for Anna, that she recognized this desire and need in her to make a difference. So this is what her voice is about. And she has this incantation bowl, which her aunt Yotha gives to her. And she's told to write her deepest longing or that thing that lies at the bottom of her heart or her prayer or whatever you want to call it in a spiraling fashion inside this bowl. And she does that, but she thinks very carefully about what it will be. And she takes it very seriously because it is now making this kind of real and tangible to her. Uh, So she writes... Uh, essentially, this prayer, when I am dust, seeing these words over my bones, she was a voice. So that's what she means by being a voice in the world and, um, and, and being a kind of scribe to it. So I wonder, uh, I, you know, we all were young writers once or desired to be writers. I wondered Sugi and Sue, if either of you had your own version of an incantation bowl where you sort of wrote down or inscribed your desire to be a writer at some point when you were young. I think we probably all need some metaphoric incantation bowl (laughs) if you're a writer. Um, The first step, in a way, seems to be the recognition that this is, um, that you're meant for this writer's life and that it's meant for you and that you're taking it on. And I think I tried to describe that moment for me. It was when that question came to me, um, at least that, at least writing fiction. Now I had my, um, to be a writer much earlier than that. And that happened when I was 30 years old and um, walked into the kitchen and, and announced to my husband and my two toddlers that I was going to become a writer. 
and it was something I had wanted to do since I was a child um, and had not had the courage yet to do until I was 30 years old. And so that was a moment for me. Um, I'm all for people um, creating a ritual or a way to make this visible and real and tangible in their lives to, to acknowledge these kind of moments so that we, because we're always going to have the backlash to it come later. You know, it's like, what was I thinking? Of course I can't do this. These are the doubts we all deal with. So what about you, Sibby? I did not have a talisman like that. I think I have many talismans, but actually surprisingly few of them are writing connected, um, possibly because I'm, I'm a member of a diaspora. My talismans are all connected to the homeland. Um, but I was really curious about, you know, yeah, the invention of the incantation bowl. I sometimes feel like when I invent talismans for my characters, they really happen in the moments as I'm typing and I discover them. And then I'm like, oh, this character really loves this object. This object is going to reappear and have this huge significance. And I wonder what was it like for you to write about the bowl? Did you stumble on it? Did you research it in advance? Did you, what was that the moment of writing it? It was such an exciting moment for me when I discovered the bowl. Um, I want to tell you that I invented it. I did not. I found it in my research, and it was by happenstance, really. I was, you know how you chase a rabbit on the internet, and then you end up somewhere, and you think, how did I get here? Well, suddenly, I don't know how, these incantation bowls popped up on my screen. And I, and they were very um, captivating looking. They were ancient and there were these, you know, writings inside of them. Some of them had drawings at the bottom. And I began to read about them, and I discovered, I mean, I'm using it in a somewhat different way, really, in my novel, but um, they were there in the first century and preceding the first century. People did that. Some of them were more like um, to ward off evil and things like that. But... I was very excited to discover it, and I knew instantly I had found a central icon for this, this story. And I wanted to begin the story there. I didn't know the beginning until I saw that, and I thought, that's where it starts. It starts with this bowl. You know, two things I always ask myself when I start a novel, <laughs> all four of them, um, is that I, I ask myself, who is my character? Who is she? And the second thing I ask is, what does she want? When I get that worked out in my head, um, I kind of know the whole story. And when I saw that bowl, it focused it for me. It was like, oh, it's about what she wants and what does she want? She's going to write it in this bowl and that's gonna, that bowl is going to hold that longing for the entire story, and she's and you spin that bowl in order to make the words you know lift out of it, and so it's all part of their ritual. So it's great fun to find the bowl. Whitney, did you have a do you do you have a version of an incantation bowl for your writing? I didn't controls? have one. I had like a it was more like a journey, a really long camping trip that I went on when I was like sixteen. But I decided that at the end of that, I was like, look, I'm going to do this thing. It was complicated. It involved my dad telling me, my dad, who's who's was evangelical Christian, telling me a story that I wanted to have a different interpretation of that involved us out of the Bible. And I was like, no, I'm I'm going to write this story differently. 
that's a story for a different day. Um, you know, what I, we did find a really cool uh, quote that your, your French publisher sent you this note saying, even though the novel set in the first century, it was one of the most modern books that they had read this year. And I keep thinking, you know, an alternate history has to connect to what's happening in the culture that it is appearing in, right? It needs to be commenting. I mean, there are obvious, I think, parallels and connections to the Me Too movement and that the way that movement was pushing back against the general silencing of women that we've been talking about. But I also was interested in the way that you talked about the, the way that you wrote Judas um, as being a political activist against the Roman Empire. And you call this treachery an act of earnest political theater. You know, you say it speaks, I think, and these are your words, to the danger of hyper-idealism, how a person overly possessed by a principle can begin to justify almost anything for his cause. Can you talk about how or if that character was commenting on the world, political world you were living in at the time you wrote the character? Yes, yes. Um, so many things in that book were a commentary on what's happening. I think hi historical novels must be relevant or what's the point? And, um, I'll say first that there was a real Me Too moment in the um, novel, in the story, that I inserted um, with, with my character Anna and Herod Antipas. And the other thing that I went back and rewrote was during the Kavanaugh hearings. I was so distressed by listening to them that I went back and created a new character and her name was Tabitha. It was something I felt compelled to go back and put in that was my response to the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, but Judas, well, he, you know, was probably politically motivated. I would, I mean, no one knows for sure, but I wanted to give him a human side. I wanted to give him uh, a way, uh, uh, a more complicated way of thinking about him, that it wasn't so black and white, well, he's the evil one, he betrayed Jesus. But why? And what was playing out inside of him? That was one reason I did it. Um, but I also wanted to demonstrate, if I could, how our over-idealism sometimes to a particular principle or cause can almost negate the sense of the personal, it's principle over the personal, or we tend to not even see people as people anymore. It's all about the principle. Uh, you see that all the time. Because, I mean, Judas's principles, he's an advocate for the poor, really. I mean, he's and the dispossessed in a way. Yes, it, it was well motivated. That was the interesting thing about it, um, how it can turn. And I think this was influenced probably by my... Um, interest and reading of, of C.G. Jung, which I made a study of that back in my 40s. And I was very influenced by his work, and he uh, spoke about that kind of thing. And, you know, it's about balancing in our lives. And when things get out of balance, things go haywire, like with gender and with, with um, even to the extent that Judas started out right, but he was willing to sacrifice human beings for his cause. And we see, we see that with um, the Taliban, white supremacists. 
Yeah. And as we were talking about this, I can't help but think of, of Trump. And, and Anna's father is working for the Trump of the day, if you will, the, the hated Herod. And I don't want to give away too much to our listeners, but and I'm especially thinking now that this question is very gendered and connected to so much of what you've already said. There's a great scene in which Anna appeals to Herod's vanity to get Judas released from jail. And she observes it was those last words that snared him. You can sort of see her analyzing her own rhetoric. And I wonder if you could talk about the contemporary way that vanity, flattery, and ego work in the book. Well, sometimes if you hadn't noticed some world leaders have very fragile egos. But of whom could you be speaking? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I think that women, to speak truthfully, often have to speak subversively. And Anna does that. She um, does it in several places throughout. And in one instance that you're referring to, she and Faseli conspire to flatter Herod Antipas in a way that um, gets what they want and need from him. And it, they do it through flattery and um, stoking his ego. Now, um, there's another instance where she, with a character I call Appion, where Anna pretends <laughs> to be pregnant when she isn't in order to um, kind of achieve what she needs. And it comes back to, to bite her a little bit later. And she has to, to say, you know, say, oh, I'm sorry. But then in her mind, she goes, well, I'm sorry, but I'm not really sorry. <laughs> um, you know, it reminds me of something that I wrote in The Secret Life of Bees, where my character, August, says, if you want something from somebody, give them a way to hand it to you. And that's what they're up about. That's what they're doing. It's an act of resistance. The way you describe your year-long research journey is amazing. And was it a year or was it longer than that? Your research journey, however long it is, the notes, the library, master, whiteboards, pictures of artifacts. It made me think, and we, we sort of touched on this earlier in the interview, but I want to go into it fully now. You know, is it possible in some ways that what we've been taught all these years is alternate history, right? And we're still trying to figure out what real history is. I want to believe that. <laughs> I like that. I think unless somebody does dig it up somehow, we'll never know whether there was an alternate history or not. And as I said earlier, I'm not really that invested in whether it's true or not that Jesus had a wife and that this wife could have been part of the story that could have changed how history unfolded. But it is crucial to me that we imagine it um, I think our salvation is in our imagination and that we can curate our imaginations along with history as, as fiction writers to um, say, you know, this is possible. Um, I, I thought that. I thought this feels like it could have really happened. Well, great fiction always does feel that way, but I also think that it's quite clear that and we've been talking about the Me Too movement, like if women had had a greater voice in history and or talking about their experiences, you know, in earlier times when men were writing all of the histories, history would look very different. You know, I mean, I just think that's a simple fact or indigenous people in America or, you know, 
there are many numbers of people who didn't get to write histories that I think we're trying now to sort of figure out what history would look like if they had been writing it. Yes, so many voices that were left out of writing the history. And I think historians can um, address that, but fiction writers can address that too. So you've mentioned that writing the character of Anna isn't exploring so much whether Jesus had a wife or not, uh, that it's important to imagine it, that she represents the missing feminine in religion. And can you talk more about the missing feminine in religion and why you think people are seeking to fill that need in our time? Um, I think it's a absolutely important front and center issue uh, for me and for a lot of women. I hear from them all the time. Um, over 20 years ago, when I wrote The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, it was important to me then. And more recently, I co-authored a novel with my daughter called Traveling with Pomegranates, in which I looked at this yet again. I was looking at uh, Black Madonnas and ways to image the divine feminine because, well, it's like Mary Daly, the theologian, said, um, if God is male, male is God. That was her premise. It's an interesting one. But I think we need uh, imagery that helps us to see the divine in both feminine and masculine ways. And I have seen women's whole lives pivot when they have an image that, of, a, of a divine that looks like them, that includes them. So Anna became, became for me, she symbolized this missing thing not necessarily of divinity, but just of the feminine in general, her own search in the novel for a divine feminine presence. She decides, I now will pray to Sophia. And that becomes her connection to what is transcendent. Um, so Anna became an image of this lost feminine in so many ways, just women's voices in scripture, in the divinity. And I think that we need her. Um, I think the human psyche needs her and that's why we're constantly looking for her and why we're so out of whack in our culture sometimes because we don't have this kind of balance. Um, I think we all are looking for that loss when we don't maybe even realize it. Sue, we're so glad you could join us on the podcast. Uh, it was my pleasure. I absolutely loved being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. And we encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of Sue Monk Kidd's new novel, The Book of Longings, which is out April 21st from Viking. Thanks a lot. As we spent this episode talking about alternative histories, we also want to mention a couple of other alternate history books you can look for now or soon. These are from a couple of our past guests. First, novelist Matt Gallagher's Empire City, a story in which the U.S. won the Vietnam War. Matt was on our show's very first episode. We're also looking forward to Curtis Sittenfeld's forthcoming Rodham about a timeline in which Hillary Rodham refuses Bill Clinton's proposal. You can get these books and others from local and independent booksellers, many of whom are still selling and shipping online. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. 
this episode was produced by Andrea Tudhope. Thanks to the students in Whitney Terrell's UMKC podcast practicum. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned today. That's all, folks. Until next time, take care. We're wishing you good health and safety.